and we welcome you to the morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. As we all hunker down through this COVID-19 crisis, I am looking through the morning show archives for interesting, illuminating interviews to replay and some interviews that are just fun, that create a little bit of diversion from what we are experiencing right now. Today's interview, I think, nicely suffices, and it's uh, one of my favorite interviews when it comes to exploring some of the quirks of the English language. This interview dates from 2008. I hope you enjoy it. I am so excited about the next few minutes because it means reconnecting with Dr. Marty Grothy, uh, who I spoke with on uh, a couple of other occasions about two previous books of his which have explored uh, wonderful ways of, of expressing ourselves in more artful fashion. He wrote an interesting book called Oxymoronica, Exploring the Oxymoron and uh, Vive la Repartee. His next, or uh, his most recent book called I Never Metaphor I Didn't Like, a comprehensive compilation of history's greatest analogies, metaphors, and similes. Dr. Grothy is actually a psychologist, management consultant, and platform speaker. Uh, and he has this love affair with, uh, with language and uh, a wonderfully discerning way of taking apart some of the things which are so easy for us to take for granted, those things which make such a vivid difference in how effectively we manage to communicate. And uh, so we'll explore all of this in this wonderful book uh, published by HarperCollins. And Dr. Marty Grothy, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Well, thank you, Greg. It's a real pleasure to be back speaking with you once again. You uh, talk in your book about how there are certain things in our language which elevate uh, our, our language and its, uh, its capacity to convey ideas in, in, in more vivid fashion. In some respects, it's a little bit like the distinction between poetry and prose. Just talk for a moment about that. Well, I think you're on to a very important point there, Greg. I mean, when you look at the stuff that you read on a daily basis in newspapers and magazines, you know, it's not that exciting. Uh, it's called prose, by the way. Uh, um, but every now and then, uh, when we read prose that's exceptionally well-crafted by some a person with a real gift for words, uh, that language is elevated, uh, oftentimes to an extraordinary degree. Uh, I think it was uh, William Cullen Bryant, uh, the uh, 19th century writer, who said, eloquence is the poetry of prose. And uh, what I've discovered now is that uh, metaphorical observations oftentimes take ordinary prose and elevate it to the height of great poetry, and that's really what I've tried to do in the book, just uh, compile what I think are a couple thousand of the greatest uh, analogies, metaphors, and similes that have ever been written. I think one of the very best examples of this in this little opening portion of the book is when you give us a very straightforward, dry, prosaic statement about what adolescence is. 
And then you suggest, by contrast, a much more interesting way <laughs> to sort of say exactly the same thing. Do you have those in front of you to share with our listeners? No, but why don't you go ahead and do it, because you'll do a good job of that, I'm sure. <laughs> so the prosaic, straightforward way would be, adolescence is a time of great turmoil. And, of course, no one who has ever been an adolescent or parented an adolescent or both would ever argue with that. Adolescence is a time of great turmoil. But a little bland, right? Right. Uh, as opposed to uh, Arthur Kessler's way of saying it, adolescence is a kind of emotional seasickness. Ah, yes. Well, I think the other example I recall giving there in that first chapter uh, is uh, ask people to come up with a good definition of a committee. And, you know, I mean, most people don't think very highly of committees, so they might say something like, well, a committee is a, a waste of time, or a committee is a, a questionable uh, method for uh, making decisions. But there was an English writer uh, named uh, uh, Barnett Cox uh, a number of years ago who uh, likened a committee <laughs> to a, a neighborhood cul-de-sac, and he said, a committee is a cul-de-sac down which ideas are lured and then quietly strangled. <laughs> now, in my opinion, that is the single best observation that has ever been made about a committee. And, of course, it's made in this wonderful uh, metaphorical language. And, and, you know, that's what happens when uh, people use metaphorical language. They take one thing and they try to relate it to another thing, often something quite different. But when we see the old thing from the new perspective, uh, what happens is we never go back and, and look at the first thing in the same way again. Right. You quote Sigmund Freud at one point uh, in talking specifically about analogies, one of these uh, linguistic tools, uh, in saying very much the same thing. Analogies, it is true, decide nothing but they can make one feel more at home. Well, and this is actually part of the human experience. Um, uh, what happens when you are trying to describe something to somebody who is not familiar with this thing that you are describing, how do you do that? Well, the way that you do that is you, tra you take this new thing that they have no knowledge of and you try to relate it to something else that they are already familiar with. Uh, this is called analogical thinking or, or metaphorical thinking. And, I mean, it's something that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years. You know, we tend now to uh, think about it occurring in, 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 in literature, uh, but it's something that people do every single day of their lives. I mean, look at all the uh, the so-called sports metaphors uh, that are used in 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 business and everyday life. You know, when we say things like uh, um, "keep your eye on the ball," well, you know, you're not literally keeping your eye on the ball if you're you know in a committee meeting or if you're uh, doing a job. Uh, but we're taking that that notion from one. Uh, sector of life and, and applying it to to another sector and or when we talk about somebody somebody fumbling the ball on a given project absolutely they haven't That's ever had a ball literally in their hands uh, in in this particular situation well, but absolutely. that's what it feels like 
Or somebody who's uh, on the ropes, or somebody who's throwing in the towel. I mean, these are all uh, what are called sports metaphors, and, and, and those aren't particularly exciting ones. But, I mean, um, uh, there's a very uh, a popular saying uh, that you can't steal second base while keeping your foot on first. Hmm. Now, literally, what that means is it's a truth of baseball. You know, you, you can't steal second base if you're going to keep your, your foot on first. Uh, but what, what it really means when we look at it metaphorically is that life involves risk, and overly cautious people aren't likely to make very much progress. And so uh, we do this kind of thing all the time when we're trying to convey ideas to people. Um, um, a, a wonderful example of this, I think, uh, comes from uh, Charles Schultz, the uh, cartoonist who did uh, you know, Charlie Brown and, and, and Peanuts. And he uh, said, life is like a 10-speed bicycle. Most of us have gears we never use. Hmm. Well, think about that. I mean, this is a spectacular observation. He, he could have said, um, most people do not live up to their potential. I mean, that would have been prose, and that would have been prosaic. I mean, it would have been a little boring. But what he did is he helped us form an image in our minds. And, and this is what happens with great metaphors, is that it creates a word picture. And so when all of a sudden now uh, he begins to help us see that uh, we maybe have ten gears in our gearbox, but uh, uh, if we're like most people, we're maybe using the sixth gear, and we got three or four more that are available to us if we just decide to use them. Hmm. I find that having read your book, I am so much more aware of how uh, analogies and metaphors and similes crop up all the time in our daily lives and and in the way that people express themselves. In fact, I wrote uh, in the inside cover one that I heard on NPR uh, the day before yesterday, somebody talking about difficulties within the the, uh, John McCain uh, campaign staff relating it back to apparently similar difficulties in Hillary Clinton's campaign staff. And they said Hillary's campaign inner circle was such a vicious snake pit that any real life snake upon uh, visiting it would have dropped dead from fear and um, I, I mean if, if I hadn't read your book I think you know that, that's a very colorful picture but I don't think I would have appreciated it on the same level as I do now well I'm so delighted that you've said that because one of the reasons I decided to do this book is that uh, when I've asked, as I have, hundreds of people, uh, tell me what you know about analogies and metaphors and similes, uh, most of them think back to their high school English classes. You know, and, and half of the time they were falling asleep during these dull, boring lectures when, you know, English teachers were trying to communicate these literary devices. Uh, and what I'm trying to get across to people is that this stuff is exciting. And it helps us to see the world in a rich and vivid way. And, and, and every single um, example of metaphorical thinking can be pursued in so many fascinating ways. I mean, it's likely that a, uh, <clears throat> you know, a teenager might you know, hear that, well, uh, Shakespeare said, the world, all the world's a stage. And that's true. That's a metaphor. Um, and so, but if you just stop there... It, it doesn't convey, you know, the, 
the neatness of the concept and the power behind it. Uh, Shakespeare was actually inspired uh, by uh, a, 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 an observation that goes back to Roman times when the great Roman writer had said, life is like a play. It's not the length, but the excellence of the acting that matters. And again, both of those metaphors take one thing, life or the world, and they relate it to something else, uh, stage or performances. And in Shakespeare's, you know, As You Like It, he pursues the metaphor a little further by talking about the roles that we play and the exits and the entrances. But, you know, if you and I were just to sit down for two minutes and pursue the all the worlds a stage metaphor further, I mean, look where we could take it. We could talk about uh, great performances and mediocre performances and, and poor performances, uh, or we could talk about uh, people in lead roles or supporting roles. Or the uh, backstage preparation that's so important. Absolutely. And see, that's what I like about uh, metaphorical thinking, is that it primes the, you know, the intellectual uh, pump, and it just stimulates a tremendous number of new ideas. Hmm. Uh, you, you say this in, in talking about the metaphor specifically at one point. A metaphor is a kind of magical mental changing room, where one thing for a moment becomes another, and in that moment is seen in a whole new way. It's like watching a man imitating a woman. We often learn more about the man in the few moments he acts like a woman than we can after years of observing him behaving as a man. As soon as something old is seen in a new way, it stimulates a torrent of new thoughts and associations, almost as if a mental floodgate has been lifted. Yes, yes. I mean, it happens all the time. I had a, a friend uh, visiting uh, our home about uh, two months ago, and she happened to have um, grown up in a family where her father uh, was an alcoholic, and, and she was talking about the impact it had on her and, um, and on uh, some of her siblings. And, of course, my father was also an alcoholic, so we you know, compared a few notes, but then... In the middle of the conversation, I, I looked over at my friend, and I said, well, you know, I'm reminded of a great metaphorical quote that, uh, um, uh, that's going to be showing up in my new book, and it comes from a, a writer. Her name happens to be Joyce uh, Rebetta Burdett, but the quote is, alcoholism isn't a spectator sport. Eventually, the whole family gets to play. Hmm. And I'm telling you, when I offered that observation to this woman, her jaw dropped, and she said, please repeat that quote. She wrote it down, and uh, she sent me a note uh, a couple of weeks later by email saying that uh, she has posted that note up uh, on her kitchen uh, uh, bulletin board because she thought it captured you know, so brilliantly uh, a very uh, painful aspect of her life, uh, but in a way that she wanted to kind of keep reminding herself uh, that these painful things can often be described in somewhat beautiful ways. Hmm. We are talking with Dr. Marty Grothy about his book, I Never Metaphor I Didn't Like. Um, it's really interesting and helpful to me that you take a little time at the top of the book to explain 
the distinctions between analogies and metaphors and similes, yeah. who are, which are all related and sort of spring out of the same impulse and yet are slightly different animals. Uh, to use a metaphor, <laughs> inadvertently. Um, let's begin with the analogy, which well, is in some ways the most complicated of, of the well, three. I would like to begin with the uh, metaphor then, uh, because uh, they build upon one another. If I say life um, is a journey, or life is a box of chocolate, box of chocolate. Well, these are all uh, these are all metaphors. In a metaphor, we're saying A is B. Uh, in a simile, we're saying A is like B, or A is uh, uh, similar to B. Uh, to say life is like a box of chocolates would make something a simile. Ah. Uh, or to say, uh, I mean, and, and in fact, when you ask people to come up with similes, they usually don't have a problem because there are thousands of similes, like uh, happy as a clam, thin as a rail, uh, sharp as a tack. Those are similes. And, and so most people don't think similes are all that spectacular because the ones they think about are so common and, and hackneyed. But I'm telling you, similes can be absolutely uh, exciting. Uh, the one I told you earlier about, life is like a 10-speed bicycle, from Charles Schultz, well, that's a simile. Um, 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 Andy Rooney said, um, um, life is like a roll of toilet paper. Hmm. Do you remember this one now? I don't. He said, uh, life is like a roll of toilet paper, the closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. <laughs> okay, so those are similes. Uh, they use the words like or as. Now, analogies are slightly more complicated, but in my opinion, are even more uh, mentally stimulating. The uh, cover of the book, um, you have it in front of you, do you not? Yes. Uh, the cover of the book, and, and I'll test you on this one if you don't mind, uh, maybe you know it, maybe you don't, has a picture of a fish riding a bicycle. Now, when you saw that for the first time, did you know where that came from? Um, not exactly. I've seen that image used in, in uh, something different, a statement about uh, the irrelevance of religion to oh, human beings. Yeah, well, the, the, the inspiration for that particular image comes from a very famous quote it's often misattributed to Gloria Steinem because it was a feminist slogan back in the 1970s, but it's an, an, an analogy. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And, of course, the point of that is a fish does not need a bicycle, so therefore a woman does not need a man. But in an analogy, what happens is instead of the A is B or A is like B, we have a kind of A is to B as C is to D. And, uh, and there are spectacular analogies. Um, let me just give you two examples that are kind of my favorites. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke said, giving money and power to government <laughs> is like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. <laughs> well, I mean, that is a spectacular analogy. And uh, now this is a brand new one. It doesn't even appear in the book, but I just found this a couple of days ago, and I was so taken with it, I immediately wrote it down. I'll probably put it on my website uh, very soon. But it comes from the uh, self-help uh, author uh, Dennis Holy. He said, 
expecting the world to treat you fairly because you are good is like expecting the bull not to charge because you are a vegetarian. <laughs> well, yeah. it's a it's a wonderful analogy because you know the point you know uh, the point is that you know just because you're a good person, hey, listen, that's you're still going to experience some suffering, you know, just like the vegetarian is going to be chased by the bull as much as the meat eating person. Well, and it's interesting. It brings to mind um, again from this introduction. Um, uh, this is when you're talking about the simile. Uh, this dates back uh, over nearly 400 years. Some books are to be tasted, others to be swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested. Francis Bacon. Uh, yeah, but yeah, that it, was written in 1625. In a sense, analogies are are something where we have to chew and digest. There's just enough complexity there that I mean it. it takes a, a moment or two for, for us to maybe fully grasp, especially a, a more sophisticated uh, sort yeah. of analogy. Yeah, now just talking about that great book uh, comment from, uh, from Bacon, I mean, there actually is another, it's an analogy, but it's, it's very simple to understand because it's real quick. A reading is to the mind what exercise is to the body. See, that's a perfectly phrased analogy because we have that A is to B as C is to D uh, structure. Um, but uh, 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 there's an old Yiddish proverb, uh, you know, uh, what soap is to the body, laughter is to the soul. And so I, I love analogies, and the sad reality is when, uh, when many uh, high school students are learning about analogies in their sophomore and junior uh, years of high school, uh, they're, you know, they're learning these, these cumbersome, uh, oftentimes obtuse analogies, and the whole subject just turns people off. Um, but if all of a sudden uh, a, a high school English teacher could say, I'm going to teach these kids about analogies, but I'm going to use words and, and language that they can relate to and understand, uh, I think it would be a whole different, uh, you know, uh, uh, high school uh, learning experience. I mean, Phyllis Diller, you know, said cleaning your house while the kids are still growing. It's, it's like, like shoveling it's snow like, and it's, <laughs> when it's still snowing. It's like shoveling the, the walk before it stops snowing. See, that's an analogy. And it's a clever and cute analogy. And, and why can't we uh, teach our students, you know, uh, this kind of stuff? Uh, why do we have to give them this kind of boring stuff? Hmm. And, of course, it's fascinating how this kind of use of language can illuminate all kinds of human experiences Politics, for instance, you devote a whole chapter then of of uh, metaphors and similes and analogy, analogies, which which tell us something about politics and the way we uh, the way politics plays out. I I actually really like a, a quote you give us uh, from B Barack Obama, who says everybody knows politics is a contact sport. So that would be a metaphor. Uh, absolutely. Uh, if he said, you know, politics is like, you know, a contact sport, that would make it a simile. Mm. Um, but, you know, there are wonderful political metaphors that all your listeners are familiar with. When we, when we hear that money is the mother's milk of politics, 
you know, that's, you know, that's a really common uh, metaphor. Back in the 1970s, uh, when Henry Kissinger uh, had all these beautiful young ladies on his arm, he came up with that famous metaphor about power. Do you recall that one? No. Power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. Mm. Um, uh, but I've got all kinds of great ones. Now, the, one of them I, I want to mention for sure, sure, because we're in Wisconsin. You uh, quote comedian Dennis Miller as saying, Washington, D.C. is to lying what Wisconsin is to cheese. Oh, yeah. Isn't that a, that, no, that's a, see, that's a wonderful analogy? But I, uh, I want to say that my very favorite, well, I got a couple of them, actually. I like also Robin Williams saying, politicians are like diapers. Yeah. They should be changed frequently and for the same reason. Mm-hmm. But I think really, in some ways, the most insightful of anything in this whole chapter comes from Mario Cuomo. Oh, you, you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose. And um, you, you, you point out the fact that, that he's actually drawing upon earlier versions of that same kind of image, the image sometimes in romance of making lavish, uh, florid promises uh, when, in fact, the nitty-gritty of real life is something else. Indeed, yeah, and uh, I, I just love uh, these kinds of, of metaphors. That, that is one of my favorites as well. Uh, and uh, nobody had ever really heard that because it had been uh, the concept of doing one thing in poetry and something else in prose. While it went back centuries, it really wasn't part of the common parlance. But, you know, all of a sudden back in you know, the mid-'80s when he said, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose, you know, it really captured uh, beautifully what happens. Uh, you know, going going up to the, uh, you know, I'm from North Dakota, as you may recall, and so, you know, I have great fondness for, you know, people from North Dakota and Minnesota and Wisconsin and, and all of those, you know, those northern states. But uh, another wonderful uh, quotation from uh, Walter Mondale. It, it's helped me to see uh, political campaigning in a whole new way. He said political image is like mixing cement when it's wet you can move it around and shape it but at some point it hardens and there's almost nothing you can do to reshape it Hmm. i mean i thought about this during the primaries this year i'm thinking about it now during this election I mean, what happens with political image is at the very beginning of the process, you know, it is kind of moldable and malleable. Uh, and if you are unfortunate enough to have your opponent define your image, and then that begins to harden, you know, you're never going to win the election. And so uh, all campaigns are contact sports, uh, yes, but what we're really trying to do here is we see uh, candidate A uh, trying to define candidate B along his terms, not along candidate B's terms, and if that image sticks, uh, it's curtains for the other candidate. Hmm. Uh Often these kind of tools help us uh, get a hold of something that might be a little little bit nebulous, like what is music or what is architecture. Um, Because I'm a radio journalist, I appreciated this uh, image uh, from Matthew Arnold. Journalism is literature in a hurry. And in a sense, I suppose, uh, so much of the way we communicate with one another we do hurriedly. And in a sense, uh, this whole realm 
is is about not doing that, about taking just a few extra moments to craft what you're going to say or what you're going to express in such a way that it's sort of, to borrow another metaphor, it's given wings oh, uh, by this kind of tool. Yeah. I'm not sure where that quote appears, but it might have appeared in my chapter on definitive yes, metaphors. Yes, it and does. I, mm-hmm. And, and what, I'm, what I'm trying to get across in that chapter is saying that, you know, when we say something is definitive, we mean that it is so good it serves as a standard or a, a reference point against which all other things in that uh, class can be judged. Now, if we say it's the definitive book on the subject, well, that means that it is the numero uno book on a particular topic. Well, j- just as there are definitive uh, uh, books, there are definitive uh, quotations, and I've got a whole chapter uh, devoted to those, and, and uh, I'll just mention a couple of them that I like. Uh, you may have some of your own favorites, but Cahil um, uh, Gibran once said, an exaggeration is a truth that has lost its temper. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a psychologist. I've been a marriage and family counselor for 30 years. And, and what do we know uh, is one of the most common things that happens in human relationships. What happens is when you get mad at somebody else, you say something in such an exaggerated way, uh, it, it, it goes completely beyond the original offense that you were trying to describe, uh, but to then you know, look at Cahil Gibran and to say an exaggeration is a truth that has lost its temper you know, is a wonderful observation. Um, um, uh, another wonderful metaphorical observation that is in that chapter came from uh, an American writer named Mason Cooley, and he said a skyscraper is a boast in glass and steel. Hmm. And, you know, if you ever go to any large city in America, and now all around the world, you know, what do we see? We see these competing... Uh, skyscrapers, who's got the biggest, who's got the boldest, who's got the most dramatic. And so for him to take, you know, the architectural construction of a skyscraper and to relate it to the interpersonal world of boasting and bragging, you know, I thought was absolutely brilliant. Hmm. And of course, when when somebody takes the time and, and uh, utilizes the creativity it takes to to produce a, a linguistic moment like that, in a sense, we we find ourselves really apt to believe them. I mean, even if maybe going into it, we we really wouldn't think necessarily that such and such is is that. But there is great persuasive power when these when this kind of use of language is is wielded. I mean, we subconsciously or consciously sort of believe like this is being delivered by somebody who is truly bright and, and insightful. Well, absolutely. You know, Aristotle talked about this because, you know, he said there are masters of metaphor. And what he meant by that, and he uses a wonderful expression, he says some people have a keen eye for resemblance, a keen eye for resemblance, meaning they could discover a relationship between two things that most of the people in the world would never say are related. Uh, uh, but once they uh, made that connection between these two unrelated things, you know, all of a sudden we began to now see it in a totally new and totally different way. 
I mean, uh, you know, when you know Carl Sandburg said a baby is God's opinion that the world should go on, uh, or when uh, Balzac said bureaucracy is a giant mechanism operated by pygmies. Uh, I mean, these are these are great uh, metaphorical descriptions, uh, and 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 all of them create kind of an image in our minds. Hmm. Do we have time for a couple more? Or do you need to go? Oh no, I can I can hang. Okay, very a while. good, very good. I appreciated a quote of uh, writer John Gardner for kind of a strange reason. When I went to college, I went so excited, uh, very idealistically thinking that college is where you, you go hear lectures by great people who have amazing things to say. And I remember so vividly that the very first person I heard come to my alma mater a week into my freshman year was this writer I'd never heard of named John Gardner, but I can remember just eagerly sitting in the front row of the balcony with several of my classmates, and I was bored out of my mind, and we, we left after 20 minutes. We just It was so far over our heads, we just had no idea what he was even talking about. Really? But, oh yeah, I mean, I, that says a lot more about me than it does about John Gardner, yes, I assure you. There, yeah. but, but anyway, but that is why I so appreciated a truly... Uh, brilliant uh, metaphor, which uh, he uh, shared in a book called Excellence that you share in your book, where he says, life is the art of drawing without an eraser. Life is the art of drawing without an eraser. You go on to provide, I think, some some very helpful uh, context for, for what he's really trying to say there. Well, you know, one of the things I've tried to do in this book, and I'm glad that you pointed that out, is that one of the things that has frustrated me over the years when I read a compilation of quotations is that when you just have quote after quote after quote after quote, uh, you know, it's, even if they're really fairly exciting or interesting or stimulating quotes, it can get a little boring. But my reaction as a reader oftentimes is I want to quote at least some of them to be explained a little bit or I'd like the compiler of the book to uh, provide a little context or a little bit of background information and I would say maybe 20 percent of the quotes in this book have some kind of little commentary by me and uh, so many uh, readers uh, have uh, who've already uh, picked up copies of the book have written me to tell me how much they've appreciated that because you know, when all of a sudden you began to see how this observation from person A is related to something that person B said, you know, 200 years earlier, uh, it's, it's very helpful for readers who, who want to fully appreciate the nature of an observation. And it seems like these are devices where uh, there is sort of an open-endedness. That's part of the point of it, is that a given analogy or metaphor is not the last, final, definitive word on something, but it is something that sparks our interest and makes us want to engage that observation uh, even more. Well, and, you know, we, we, we touched upon this earlier in our interview today when, when uh, Shakespeare said the world is a stage, you know, that wasn't the last word on that subject. Oscar Wilde came along, you know, uh, a couple of centuries later, and he said, the world is a stage, but the play is badly cast. 
So I can't see, and, and what, so, what, what he's doing there is this is called pursuing a metaphor. When we pursue a metaphor, what happens is we take the original idea and we just kind of follow it down a path. Sure. And of course, it, it, it shows us the great potential and promise of such things, but also their limitations, the fact that, in fact, the world is not exactly a stage, and uh, it's in many ways it is a stage. Uh, in 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 a lot of ways, it isn't <laughs> the same thing. Well, and just by kind of wrestling with that, we we think more about what the world really is. Well, and that's another very interesting point because every single metaphor that you ever hear is figuratively false. The world is not a stage. But it is metaphorically true. And so when we say something uh, is figuratively true or is metaphorically true, what we mean by that is literally that statement may in fact be false. But at another level, a metaphorical or figurative level, it captures a great truth. Now, I am wondering what you would say about the place of this kind of writing in serious writing. I mean, when someone is, for instance, crafting a, a scholarly research paper, let's say. I remember a real-life example in my own life when I was at the University of Nebraska, where the woman who lived downstairs, who was a religion major, was crafting a, a very serious, important paper uh, on something. I've forgotten now what the topic was. But she read to me what her introductory and closing paragraphs would be, and it, it used actually the uh the metaphor of of making chili and and the point was the point she was trying to make was this given philosopher or theologian in putting together sort of random elements of various philosophies or whatever had come up with something that didn't make a lot of sense mm-hmm. and and so she she ended up using this kind of interesting metaphor of making bad chili out of poorly matched ingredients, and then finished up her paper with that same image. And she read that to me, and I was completely taken. I thought, this is really cool. I didn't know that you could write a serious paper and and write like this. Well, as it turns out, her professor didn't think you could write a serious paper and write like that. He was kind of offended by that use of metaphor. And so apparently he was looking for something that would be a bit drier and more cleanly prosaic. I wonder, in your experience, uh, is this something, if someone finds themselves in, in the position of needing to do truly serious scholarly writing, is there a place for this, or do, do, does the writer need to be very careful about uh, you're, you're on when this a, is used? You're onto a very interesting topic, and in fact, one of my pet peeves, because I think uh, people who want to do a serious scholarly writing need to use metaphors because they're operating with ideas that are so complex uh, that they need to be uh, related to people at another level. Uh, But I think there's a difference between scholarly writing and academic writing. And I come across this feeling every single time I read a college textbook. These books can can be so boring. (laughs) 
and so dull that uh, they just absolutely put me to sleep. And so I think the problem with your young lady that you were referring to there is that she was being judged by an academic uh, and not by a serious scholar because, you know, great writers have always tried to take ideas uh, that were complex and maybe a little bit confusing to people and to relate them. I mean, when, when Sigmund Freud was trying to communicate the idea of the unconscious mind uh, a century ago, you know, what did he do? You know, he said basically, and I don't have this in front of me, so this is from complete memory, he said, you know, the mind is like an iceberg, you know, seven-eighths of it is below the surface. Hmm. And so, uh, I mean, how could a guy at that stage of human development, when you know, we didn't really think very much about unconscious motivation, communicate this idea in a way that people would be able to grasp it? I mean, he could have used you know, 2,000 words to describe it, but by choosing a really nice image that people could form in their minds, he could begin to really communicate the notion that the great part of your thinking process is not available to your conscious awareness, just as the great, uh, um, the greatest amount of an iceberg uh, is below the surface of the water. Hmm. And this reminds me that probably the most difficult chapter of your book is the one called the human condition. That is some of the most complex and sophisticated metaphors and analogies are found in this chapter of various writers and thinkers trying to uh, get a grip on what it means to be human and some of the most complicated aspects of, 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 of human life. Well, you know, some, uh, I think we are talking about some of those difficult aspects of human life, but, you know, some of the uh, observations there, from my point of view, you know, are among, you know, the most interesting that I've ever, I've ever seen. I mean, you know, when Mark Twain said, you know, everyone is a moon and has a dark side which he never shows to anybody. I mean, that's a kind of an interesting observation, and, you know, we never see the other side of the moon, but his point, of course, is that, you know, uh, with human beings, there's a side of them that we never see as well. Right. Did, did you have a favorite from that chapter? Um, more, it's just the, the, the observation that many of these are the lengthiest. Yes. Uh, and and, uh, and they're... they're absolutely worthwhile i guess i guess i, I want to make sure people realize that it is that that your book is m mostly kind of wonderful zingers brief and that you know hit us right between the eyes uh, again speaking metaphorically without meaning to um and and in and in this particular chapter particularly we some of them are are actually uh, ones with which we grapple a little bit oh, and, and are engaged uh, in, on maybe a more powerful uh, s sort of level. Oh, indeed. I, uh, I really like also uh, the chapter uh, on stage and screen, which <laughs> helps us understand the experience of, of, for instance, being on stage. And one of my favorites is Rosalind Russell saying, being given good material is like being assigned to bake a cake and having the batter made for you. I mean, she helps us really appreciate something that we might already know is true, but not have really fully grasped just what a difference it makes for an actor or actress when they have placed in their hands a wonderful script. 
indeed, yeah. I mean, it's just fascinating. I mean, I, there, there's so many wonderful quotes that I have loved in every one of these chapters. I, I do want to just mention one more that we haven't talked about, because, you know, of all of the quotations, I guess, uh, I've ever put together, this is one of my favorite. And you, may, you know uh, Anton Chekhov, the great uh, Russian writer. Uh, he was actually a physician, and uh, for the early part of his uh, life, uh, writing was his avocation. But now we remember him mainly for his writing. But, you know, he once said, uh, medicine is my lawful wife and literature is my mistress. <laughs> and, when, and when I tire of one, I go to another. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a spectacular metaphor in its own right, but what I really like about this metaphor is I think it is the secret to career happiness, because I think every single person should have two passions, at least, uh, but two for certain. Uh, when you pursue one and get a little tired of it, you can go to the other one and refresh yourself. <laughs> Very good. Let me uh, finish, actually, with a couple that uh, are not in your book that I think you will appreciate hearing. You have a plethora of wonderful uh, metaphors and analogies about the work of critics. And I happen to be uh, the CD critic for the Journal of Singing. And so my ears perked up at uh, a recent uh, convention of the National Association of Teachers of Singing when Cheryl Milnes, uh, not knowing the source of this analogy, Uh, said about critics, uh, uh, critics are to music what pigeons are to statues. (laughs) (laughs) A perfect analogy. And who said that? Well, uh, opera singer Cheryl Milnes was quoting somebody. He had no idea where that came from. Honest to goodness, if I had known about that one, I would have put it in the book. That's a great... I, I appreciate that. And, you know, this reminds me of something else that I would like to uh, say to your listeners, which is, um, if they have favorite analogies they don't find in the book, please send them to me, and, and all they have to do is just come up to my website, which is, you know, www.drmarty.com, and that's D-R-M-A-R-D-Y, but that's a lovely analogy. It really is, isn't it? Uh, one that's less lovely, lovely but uh, mighty funny. Uh, it was an insult, which I heard from actually a very fine um, older woman here in town who actually had a program on our station years ago. I won't say anything more than that to okay. identify her, but uh, in talking about somebody actually uh, associated with the station who will also remain nameless, uh, and uh, there's this word that starts with A and it ends with the word whole, mm-hmm. which I don't say out loud, especially okay. over the air, yep. but she said if, uh, if blanks could fly, he'd be a jet. <laughs> You know, I I love uh, insults, and I have a whole chapter. You on sure do, and it's a very lively one. Well, uh, can I mention one that is, I think, my favorite in that? And, Please. And see, some of the best uh, observations of all time come from anonymous sources. But um, you may recall Claire Booth Luce. Yes. Uh, she was a writer back in the 1920s and 30s. She married uh, Henry Luce, the founder of Time magazine. She, in the 1940s, went on to become a prominent figure in the Repu- Republican Party. But she was apparently quite a beautiful woman. And, uh, and in uh, a biography written about Luce, uh, the biographer said that uh, Claire Booth Luce was once described 
as a beautiful palace without central heating. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, do they get any better than that? Mm. Uh, and every time now I see a really, really beautiful woman or a really, really exceptionally handsome man, but they're, you know, not very nice people. Uh, in fact, maybe they're kind of cold and aloof. I often think of that metaphor of, you know, a beautiful palace without central heating. Well, and I think of, of uh, Aaron Copland's uh, insult of one of my favorite pieces of music, the Fifth Symphony of Rayfon Williams. Yeah. He says, listening to the Fifth Symphony of Rayfon Williams is like staring at a cow for 45 minutes. <laughs> I could not disagree more. Yeah. But it says something about uh, how ingratiating these linguistic tools are, that even when we happen not to agree with them, we can still appreciate the creativity which, uh, which brought that metaphor, simile, or analogy into being in the first place. Oh, and, you know, and critics, uh, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Even though we may not we appreciate how they're saying it. Absolutely. The book, again, is I Never Metaphor I Didn't Like. It's published by HarperCollins, a comprehensive compilation of history's greatest analogies, metaphors, and similes by Dr. Marty Grothy. His website, again, drmarty.com. Thank you so much for another wonderful conversation on The Morning Show. This has been fun. Hey, Greg, it has been an absolute blast. I really appreciate your longstanding interest in my efforts.